Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed your Labor Day weekend. As always, thank you so much for listening to us. We enjoy that you're here every week. And also, be sure to check out our website at www.shumcokc.org. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. Kate and I did so many things over the course of the last week. I'm going to tell you about some of them here in a minute because we also have so many things yet to come. First, though, I'm going to let you know that I am going to stand on this side of the stage this morning. And it's not because I like the people on this side of the room better than I like the people on this side of the room. It's because as we've been living into the new ministry center, we've learned a few things over the course of the time that we've been here. One of those things that we've learned is that our stage lights, the bulbs in them, are burning out faster than we anticipated. And so our AV team, under the direction of Devin Kuchenbecker, has done a wonderful job in identifying some light bulbs that apparently, like the LED light bulbs, will last a very long time. And through a very generous private donation, we were able to cover the cost of getting those light bulbs changed, which we're super excited about. You may be aware, I was actually having friend uh, dinner last night, Kate and I were, with a couple of friends in ministry, uh, one of whom is serving at Wesley United Methodist Church here in Oklahoma City. He was previously the associate pastor at Moore First United Methodist Church. Uh, Kate and I have been friends with Adam and Allie Shahan now for a very long time. And so we were out at dinner last night. We were talking about ministry-related things, uh, and we were talking about how it's common knowledge now throughout the church, regardless of denomination, that most churches have about a third of their pre-pandemic worship attendance attending on campus in person. But a lot of churches, just like ours, have experienced a lot of people uh, attending virtually, some more than others. Our church has been particularly successful in that venue. So whether you're worshiping on campus or online, we're glad for you and we're glad to worship with you wherever and whenever you are. Our tech team has been instrumental in helping us to reach people beyond the physical campus venue here. And one of the ways we do that is by making sure that people on campus and online can see us on stage. So we're excited about moving forward with that project. We're waiting on a few things uh, that have been ordered to come in, and then the company that fixes that will get that taken care of for us, and those lights should last a very long time. But until then, I'm going to stand on this side of the stage, because the middle of the stage where I normally stand is pretty dark, so I'm going to be over here for now. We have some great things happening, and I want to share some of them with you, because this week's a busy week in the life of Southern Hills. This coming Wednesday, you can find all of this on your information sheet if you're here on campus. If not, send us a message. We'll get you included um, in the email blast and the text messages that go out. But on Wednesday this week, we have a children's ministry open house. We've launched a new children's ministry program. Super excited about it. Really enjoying participating in that. Um, we have that in a completely secure part of our building so that only our children and youth and adults who have been properly background checked and vetted can go into that space. We want to make sure that we create as safe and secure an environment as possible. But what that means is that you can't just wander through the rooms and go see them. And so we'd love for you to do that. If you want to see the rooms that we're using, this Wednesday at 5.15, our children's ministry and our family ministry staff are going to be there to help walk you through the rooms and answer all of your questions. Then on Saturday, starting at 9, we're going to have our annual craft fair. Uh, the, the craft fair is still soliciting donations of baked goods to put out. I, I remember, if, if I remember correctly, we didn't do that last year because of the pandemic. So I'm excited that the baked goods shop is coming back to the craft fair this year. That's one of the most sought after parts of the craft fair. In fact, Megan, my daughter, 
whom you know well and you know makes fabulous cinnamon rolls, is thinking about making some cinnamon rolls, and she's praying about it. She's next door receiving kids at the welcome desk for Children's Church. So if you happened to walk by and say, you know, I'm feeling the nudge of the Holy Spirit, or maybe it was just Matt, I'm not sure, to tell you that you should make some cinnamon rolls, that would be fabulous. Just don't tell her um, in the end that that came from me. So bring some baked goods up. There's information in the uh, announcement sheet about how you can do that. And then on Sunday, we have our pumpkins arrive. We're going to have around 3,000 pumpkins. This has been the primary fundraiser for our youth ministry program for 27 years. Olivia, our youth director, is doing a great job of coordinating that. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do everything you can to be here next week. Whether you're able to unload pumpkins or not, come and join us in one of the older traditions that we have here at Southern Hills. Spend some time worshiping with us. Spend some time in fellowship with us as we start to unload the pumpkins. Olivia has done a good job of contacting other community partners so that we'll have plenty of help there. And then join me in signing up for a shift out in the pumpkin patch. There are still some available. I'm going to volunteer out there. Whether you have children in the youth ministry or ever have or not, it's a great way to support some very good things that are helping to prepare the next generation for Christian life and service. There's a sign-up right at the back of the ministry center. If you're participating virtually but you're local to Oklahoma City, you can message us. We'll send you a link to where you can sign up virtually to be a part of that. I am so glad to be back here with you, in part because of all the things that we have going on. I absolutely love being a part of a church where so many things are happening. But I also very much enjoyed the chance to be away last week. So I told you um, last week, you would have seen in the sermon, that Kate and I were in the process of traveling back from Colonial Williamsburg. We decided to go there to celebrate Kate's birthday. That had been a bucket list item for me ever since I heard about it. Kate took a fourth grade trip there and had always wanted to go back. So if you're not familiar with what Colonial Williamsburg is, you're in good company. I wasn't either. I probably should have been, but I wasn't until Kate told me about it um, while we were still dating. Colonial Williamsburg is the largest outdoor living history museum in the entire world. It's an amazing place. It was originally the capital of the English colony of Virginia until Thomas Jefferson moved the capital over to Richmond, um, and the town of Williamsburg then fell into disrepair over time. People just up up and moved to where the, the bustle of commerce, trade, and government activity was happening in Richmond, and they left their homes essentially in Williamsburg behind. And so in the 1920s, A Baptist minister, I didn't want to tell you that, but I'm going to tell you the truth. There was a Baptist minister who was particularly loved, looked at those uh, buildings and said, you know, what if we restored the homes and the businesses that have fallen into disrepair and rebuilt those that are only existing now in the form of a foundation that's left to look exactly like the town used to look? And then we can, we can bring people in for a living history exhibit where they can walk through the town, see the homes. We'll have people dress up in colonial attire who can answer their questions and give tours. The town got behind it, and so some of the homes were renovated because they were still there, and some of the businesses were as well. 
Kate is actually a descendant of the Shields family, which came over on the Mayflower and opened a tavern in Colonial Williamsburg. The Shields Tavern is still there. It's not open for business right now. We ate at a tavern that was right next door to it, and it was a fun thing. It was a fun time. We got to go to all of the different homes and business. Some of them are private residences. Some of them are open for touring. Some of them are being renovated. But it's about three streets, 301 acres of an outdoor experience where the governor's mansion is still there, the House of Burgesses is there, and you get a chance to immerse yourself in the colonial history of the United States in America and see what it was like to be in an English colony, and we learned all the things we didn't know. Kate and I, with the exception of making reservations um, for, for dinner and stuff like that, if we know that it's going to be hard to find a place to eat, which it is right now, um, as we've traveled, one of the things we've discovered is that as you go around the Oklahoma City Metro, if you're local to, to this place, you see all the signs advertising that people are hiring, right? That's happening everywhere. Everybody's struggling to get people, to, to find people to work. So because of that, um, some of the businesses were closed. Uh, some of the people who had helped, dressed up in colonial attire, walked around the town, had not come back to Colonial Williamsburg after the pandemic. Um, and so Kate and I, when we went there, in, in, in spite of making reservations for places to eat, because we knew it would be hard to get in because nobody can find people to hire to help right now, other than that, we will just explore the area that we're, that we're in. We'll find a place that looks interesting and we'll duck inside and see if we can learn something. So we're having so much fun doing this, right? Um, and we learn so many things. We couldn't get into the tavern that was started by her ancestors, so we ate at the one next door. Everybody there was dressed in colonial attire, right? And we sit down. It's very much like a colonial tavern would have been, which you would have to think of as like a bed and breakfast. And they talked to us about how it worked and who stayed there and what they paid for and how they ate and what they ate. And it was very interesting. But when Kate and I walked in, uh, we learned one of the first of the things that we were going to learn while we were there. We learned so many interesting things that I never knew. I'm going to share some of them with you this morning. One of them is this. We sat down and they had the largest napkins I've ever seen in my life anywhere. And Kate and I commented on, we were like, because you know, we're kind of taught uh, to be socially correct. We should put the napkin in our lap while we're eating. So we'll do that when we go out to eat. We pick up these napkins to put them in our lap. But these napkins are the size of like a bed sheet. You know, we're like, these are huge. So we're commenting on them, right? Then the person leading the meal comes out and she explained things about the meal all night long. It's really neat. But one of the first things she said was, I bet you think the napkins are huge. And we were like, well, yes, we do. And she said, well, here's why. She said, there was this old saying, that to be clean on the inside, you had to be clean on the outside. And so people were, they took um, the idea of keeping their clothing clean very seriously. She, see, she said, at least that's what we all said back then. But the truth was that cleaning your clothing was a difficult prospect and it, looked, it took a very long time and people didn't want to do it. So they tried to keep their clothing clean. So if you could afford, she said, to stay at an establishment like this, you would also rent a napkin. Can you believe that? Rent a napkin. It's 36 inches by 36 inches. Here's what you're going to be surprised about. We didn't know this. Have you ever heard the uh, phrase, we're trying to make our ends meet? I've heard that growing up. I always thought it meant I'm trying to kind of financially barely scrape by, trying to make my ends meet, right? We're sitting there. And she said in that era, people would take this, they would take the corners of the napkin, and they'd tie them around the back of their neck. And then the napkin would drape over almost like a bib. Right? And that evolved to stuffing it in your shirt, which evolved to putting it on your lap. She said, during this time, there was a slang term 
for tying the napkin around your neck. And she said that term was, you need to make your ends meet. And we said, that doesn't have anything to do with barely financially scraping by. And she said, no, it doesn't. It has nothing to do with it at all. That phrase evolved tremendously over time, and it should make you wonder what else you know or think you know that you don't. Here's another one. Almost didn't say this in the first service, but they laughed. I'm going to tell you this so that you'll um, believe that something you thought was crass is not crass at all. And it blew my mind. So here, Kate and I are walking around, and tobacco was a product of that uh, major cash crop in the area, right? And so during one of the tours we're on, the, they're showing us the different sizes in barrels. One barrel was huge. It held like 1,000 pounds. Another barrel is kind of like the, what you would assume a normal barrel size would be, at least what I did, I guess. If you assume a normal barrel size, that's the one, right? Then there's another barrel that's really tiny that they would put small loads of tobacco in if they were carrying it to a, a local uh, area in the town where it would be weighed because you could carry it with your hands. It was small enough to carry with your hands, right? Each of the barrels had a name. I don't remember the name of the two biggest barrels because I was laughing so hard at the name of the third barrel. The third barrel, they all had names and they were weird names, right? The third barrel is called a butt, like the word B-U-T, butt. Here's what you're going to think is crass. I'm preparing you this, for this in advance. Because it's not. Turns out that the load you could carry on your wagon or on your person um, developed into a slang term to identify what that load was. So if you had a load that was the size of the largest barrel, people would say the name of the barrel, and that was your load. You see where I'm going here? Then they would take the other barrel. The name of the barrel, that's your load. The smallest barrel size is called a butt. So they would say the name of that barrel and call it your load. And that, that a particular kind of load, so I'm just going to let you put that together in your own head. It evolved into a crass term, had nothing to do with anything of the sort. And we're walking around in this tour, totally different person. And Kate and I are so surprised because this thing we'd always thought was crass had totally different origins, right? And we looked at each other and started to say, we're learning so much here. I wonder what else there is that we think we know. We love to wander, and we love to duck in places. So we were walking around the town. They have a Merchant Square area just off the site uh, at the end of Colonial Williamsburg, where it transitions into the campus of the College of William and Mary, which is beautiful. In that merchant area, they have a number of shops, some modern, some older. We ducked into several of them. One of them was a shop called the Scotland Shop. I got to participate this weekend in the grand opening of the first Americans Museum, which I was so excited about. You already know that I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, uh, that I speak Cherokee fairly well for someone in my generation. But you also know that the rest of my ethnicity is Scottish and Irish. And so, knowing that Virginia was an English colony and Williamsburg was the capital of an English colony, I was surprised, Kate was surprised, to see a shop called the Scotland Shop. If you get on my Facebook page, you're going to see a picture of me standing out in front of that shop with the hat that I bought inside of the shop. Great shop. I absolutely loved it there. I uh, discovered a renewed love for whatever this kind of hat is called while I was inside of the shop. Wore it everywhere that I went. 
you'll probably see more of them this fall. We're wandering around, and we, we happen upon this home. We're looking for like a, an old colonial home that's open for touring, right? I already told you some of them were closed for renovation. Some of them were private residences. So we're looking for one we can tour. We see a woman, and she's sitting on a stool outside of one of the homes, uh, and we think that maybe that home is open for a tour. So we walk up there behind another family that's in, in front of us, and as we get there, she says, uh, oh, are you all here? She's wearing a mask, right? She says, oh, are you all here for the something tour? We couldn't make out what she said because she was wearing a mask, but we caught tour. And Kate and I said, yes, actually, yes, exactly, exactly what we're here for. We want to be on that tour, right? Thinking we're going to go tour the inside of this home. Well, it turns out that the tour was called the Freedom in Paradise Tour. We didn't know that yet. So we're sitting there. People are gathering. She's talking to us. She's in her late 70s. She's worked at Colonial Williamsburg for 50 years. She knows all the things about all the things, answering great questions, giving us tidbits of information we didn't know. And so Kate and I look at each other and say things like, oh my gosh, I wonder what else it is that we think we know. A man walks out from the home, who's clearly the tour guide, and we get excited. We think, okay, we're about to start this. We're about to walk inside the home, going to see what it looks like from the inside. He comes out and says, are you ready for the Freedom in Paradise tour? And we said, yes, it's exactly what we came to do today. We're so excited about doing this, right? And so we're standing there, and he said, okay, this is an hour-long walking tour of the outside of Colonial Williamsburg, and there's nowhere to sit. Are you ready to go? We said, sure, not knowing what the tour was about, love to explore things, try to duck in and learn what we can. So we got ready. We were ready to walk. We had already been ready to walk. I had my hat. Everything was good to go. And we start off down the streets of Colonial Williamsburg when he says, um, this tour, just telling us what it's going to be about, right? He says, be careful where you walk. There's nowhere to sit. There's a lot of horses and carriages. So also be very careful where you step. We're walking down the street. And he starts to give us some of the history of the buildings, the businesses, the taverns, the homes. And he knows, he knows like everything about everything, right? Originally local to the area, he's worked there for decades. Great at answering questions. But we notice that as he's taking us around, the, the direction of the tour kind of takes a particular focus that neither of us had any idea was going to happen. He starts the tour by saying this. He says, you know, some of our founding fathers, the people we call the founding fathers, they were here, right? Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, George Washington was there frequently. He said, I'm not, I'm going to take you on this tour. And he said, I want to preface it by saying this. I do not intend, he said, to take anything away from what you believe about the founding fathers and what they did for the United States or what would become the United States. He said, I don't want to take anything away from that. And we said, okay, because we had no idea what the tour was about. And then he said, but you've got to understand that there was a difference in that time period. Today, you're going to refer to people, if you're trying to be polite, as a gentleman or a lady, maybe. But he said, back then, you didn't do that. Back then, there were three classifications, three different classifications of people. There was a difference, he said, between the peerage, you're going to learn some new things, the peerage, the gentry, and the peasantry. He said, the peerage... Those are people who are in some capacity within the royal line of succession, even if they're way far down. And then they're going to be called lords and ladies or whatever their title is. And if the line of succession fell to them, they'd take the throne no matter where they are in that list. 
But he said, then there was the gentry. The gentry were not noble. They weren't in the peerage. They weren't in the line of succession. But they had a lot of money. You would refer to those people as a gentle man or a gentle woman. And then he said there was the peasantry, and you wouldn't refer to them as anything at all unless you needed them for something. And he said, here was a major difference between the gentry, the gentlemen, gentlewomen, however you want to say that, the gentry and the peasantry. He said the difference was whether or not you worked. If you didn't work to earn a living because other people worked for you, because you had land, because you had capital, because you had income, you were in the gentry. And he said most of what we see around here is, is relative to the homes that the gentry lived in because you had to be so wealthy to have a home here. If you had a home here, you had a plantation somewhere else. And he said what you had that no one else had is what allowed you to be a part of the founding members of our country. He said, remember, I'm telling you, I don't want to take anything away from what you think about that at all. But you need, we're, today we're going to talk about what the, that group of gentry had that no one else had that gave them what they needed to do the things that they did to found the country. And he said, it's going to be hard for you to hear, I would imagine. What do you think it was? We said all kinds of things. Some people said money, resources. He said no time. They had time. And the reason they had time was because they had enslaved people to do their work for them. He said stopped right in front of a courthouse on the main street, Duke of Gloucester Avenue, that leads to the House of Burgesses. He stopped there, and he said, if you've ever heard anybody refer to the concept that there's two different legal systems in America, he said what they're really trying to say is that there's two different legal standards, and he said it started right here in this courthouse. Let me tell you some things, he said, that you don't know. He said when Slavery began in the Virginia colony. It began as a form of indentured servitude. That's where it started first. So if you were a resident of the British Isles and you wanted to come across to the, the new colonies, but you couldn't afford to do it, you could sign a certain number of years, usually about seven, over to the captain of the ship that was going to take you across the Atlantic, vowing to work for the captain of that ship for X number of years, at the end of which you would get land and a place and you you'd get your freedom and you could go uh, have some land in the colony somewhere. He said, but here's the thing. Everybody knew that the captains of those ships didn't need people to work their ships. They already had a crew. So when they got to um, the, the colonies, they would sell your contract to a wealthy landowner who would then assume your contract. You would then work out your contract at the end of which you would get uh, land and your freedom and a place to go start your own little farm somewhere within, in that case, the colony of Virginia. He said that's how a lot of people who couldn't afford the crossing afforded the crossing. And he said there were stipulations. In fact, the House of Burgesses in Virginia passed a law that said the only thing necessary in order for a contract to be binding was the full name of the person, the date it was signed, and the person's age. Because... If you were under the age of 18, then when you became 18, regardless of how many years you'd been in servitude, you were free. If you were over the age of 18 in different categories, those different categories led to different numbers of years of service, so they had to have a way to track that. He said then, they started bringing people against their will over from the African continent. And initially, he said, um, they were sold into slavery using the same contract format. Except he said, when we found the contracts, 
which they have, they were different than the contracts of those people who had come over from the British Isles. Knowing what was necessary to make them a legal and valid contract in the contracts that were uh, written at the time of the sale of people brought from Africa, he said those contracts would have a name and no date or age. And he said presumably that had the effect of keeping people in servitude forced forever. He said, here's an example. He said, uh, one of the earliest records they found of the courthouse that we were standing in front of involved three people in what they called at that time servitude. He referred to the, the people who were in servitude as the enslaved. He said, at that time, there were three people who were enslaved who escaped. Now, there was another law passed relative to those contracts, and it said this, if you escape or run away, however many days you're away, that amount of time is doubled and added to your contract. So if you're away for two days, then you've got four days added to your contract. He said there's an early case that they found the records of, reading through it, and here's what happened. Some, three people escape and run away, and they're found, all three of them in the same place. Two of them from the British Isles, one of them from Africa. Two of them came over voluntarily, one of them was forced. All found together, all in the same place, all trying to get away from the enslavement that they were a part of. They're brought before the court we're standing in front of, and he said, if you've ever heard this idea that there's two legal systems in America, what, what's being said there is that there's two standards, and he said, it's real, and it began here. And he reads us through the, the case where the two people from the British Isles have the number of days that they're gone doubled and added to the end of their contract. Their contract is modified, and then they're sent back. The person from Africa is given a new contract with no end date on it whatsoever. No date of uh, initiation, no age. He said it was one of the first instances or examples we saw of contracts written that way which in effect creates the scenario wherein a person is enslaved perpetually. He said then that became the standard for the creation of those contracts when the ships were docked that had enslaved people on them. I had no idea. At least the, uh, about those origins. And I was ashamed that I had no idea about those origins. And Kate and I looked at each other and said, I wonder what else we think we know that we don't know. And so he starts talking about slavery in the colony of Virginia. Every house we stop, he gives a different story. He talks about how the person who preceded John Hancock lived there and died right before any of the documents that you would associate with the freedom of our country were written. But he was the driving force behind them, and you've never heard his name, because the enslaved man who sat in his office and could read and write is the one who read and wrote everything for him. That would later evolve into a declaration against the crown from Virginia and would be taken as a template to be used as the Declaration of Independence. And Kate and I looked at each other and said, I wonder what else we think we know. We don't know. We stopped in front of the house of Raymond Carter III. We had been hearing stories about um, the different, the different uh, individual stories of the people who lived in the homes and the business owners and the, the difference in the plight 
of the enslaved people in the colony of Virginia versus the plight of the peasantry versus the lifestyle of the gentry in the peerage. And he'd been giving us story after story after story. And we stop in front of the home of this guy named Richard Carter III. He's the grandson of Richard Carter, who had the nickname of King. He was called Richard King Carter. And he was the wealthiest and most powerful man in the Virginia colony at his time. He died with 295,000 acres that he owned. Two generations later, Richard Carter III had inherited 65,000 of those acres and several hundred slaves, who by this point, by the time he inherits all of that, all of his slaves are descended or brought from the African continent. He fights in the American Revolution on the side of what would become America. But his belief that slavery is a deplorable evil is growing, in spite of the fact, you need to hear this, that socially it's become normalized during this time. Socially, it's normal for the colony of Virginia, right? So any, as, even as anti-slavery sentiment is growing, people are hearing the same kinds of things you might hear today about anything that's been normalized. And there are things like this. Well, this may not be right, but how do we do anything different? It's the way we do what we do. It's the way we have commerce. It's the way we do trade. It's the way we get work done. If you were to dismantle it, what would happen? But he kept growing this belief. He was a part of the Church of England, and in 1776, he retired from actively managing his own affairs. Didn't work. He was a member of the gentry. Retired from actively managing his own affairs and converted. And I struggle with this to the Baptist church. Much to my chagrin, I couldn't find a single Methodist church in the colony of Virginia. But back then, the Baptists were different. Here's what you don't know. Prior to 1776, the Baptist church was preaching a profound message of anti-slavery, just like the Methodist church was. They were almost identical. The people who, had, who, the, who were the major influences in Methodism and the Baptist church were very good friends. After 1776, and as we approach the 1860s, you see a marked change in the Baptist church to the point that the Northern Baptist Church, and now there's several versions of the Baptist Church, but the Northern Baptist Church becomes a group of people who are still very committed to anti-slavery, while the Southern Baptist Convention becomes the largest driving force in the fight to preserve slavery in what is then the United States. But at the time that Richard Carter converted to the Baptist denomination, they were very anti-slavery, and so his sentiments grew. He actually wrote to somebody in 1781, a colleague, that he had become convinced that to believe it was okay to own another human being in any capacity was evidence of a severely depraved mind. Then he began to listen to the, uh, and read the, the teachings of what we call the mystics, but those are the old saints of the church who believe that it's possible for you to know God. And his heart couldn't abide what had become normal. People were starting to get upset with him because he was becoming more vocal in the colony of Virginia about how depraved this practice was. And what did people say? It's how we do what we do. What are we going to do if we just dismantled this? How would we do anything that was the way things are normally done? And Richard Carter III said, it may be the way things are normally done right now, but the fact that something has become normalized does not make it right. Nor do I have to live in to a practice that is inconsistent with the love of Christ, even when it's hard. 
I was surprised that I didn't know about Richard Carter III. The tour guide wasn't, said nobody does. In spite of the fact that he is responsible for the largest emancipation of enslaved people prior to 1860, he would free almost 600 enslaved people whom he owned. Virginia had some strict laws about how that could happen and it had to happen in batches. So he hired a group of attorneys. They figured out how to do this in a way that it wouldn't be rescinded or refuted, which meant that people had to be freed in small batches over time. The last of that was still happening when he died in 1806 and his heirs sued his estate to stop it from happening so they wouldn't lose their inheritance, which again, I wanna remind you, were owned people. By that point, Richard Carter III, who had become discontent with living in a manner that was inconsistent with the love of Christ, had been so ostracized by the Virginia community for what he was doing that he had to leave and move to Baltimore, Maryland, which is where he died. He didn't give up his land or his holdings, but he moved away, never came back to the colony or later the state of his birth. I've been reflecting on that story. And on what other things I think I know that I don't know. James has a simple message, and it's that message. James talks about the difference between the ethic that we've been talking about, the ethic of the world and the ethic of the kingdom. He calls it wisdom. We've been talking about it as an ethic, a behavior, a practice. So let me say it this way. Just because a practice has become normalized does not make it right. And James is going to say this. He's going to say when selfish ambition and jealousy are your primary motivators, then you're going to find that the result of selfish ambition and jealousy, which is you uh, wanting things you don't have, it's so easy to see that in a materialistic context, right? I want some things that somebody else has that I don't have, and that can certainly be the case. Maybe, though, what I want that, some, that, that I don't have is an opportunity, or a promotion, or a relationship, or maybe what I want that I don't have is for everybody else to agree with what I think so that I don't have to be challenged to live outside of my own comfort level. What is James saying? If you begin to notice that what your culture has taught you about right and wrong suddenly starts to match up with the scriptural message, then you should start asking some questions and some flags should go up. Here's how he says it, and it's pointed. He says, when selfish ambition and jealousy, when you're doing things for your own purposes and deciding for yourself that you know the things. 
I understand what I'm reading in the Scriptures. I know what I need. I know what God is doing in my life. I know what needs to happen. I know where I need to go and I know what I need to be happy. Then he says that when that happens, you have a selfish ambition, a selfish jealousy. You're being taught, he says, wisdom from the earth. We've been talking about that as the ethic of the world. You're living into an ethic, he says, that produces conflict. You're going to be in conflict with what God has created because you're going to put yourself in a position to use what God has created to get you what you want, whether it's a thing, a practice, a promotion, or to get people to agree with you so you don't have to change in order to live into love of Christ. He says the difference is this. When you draw near to God and the love of Christ begins to transform you from the inside, then the discontent that you felt, right? Because you're discontent with the fact that you don't have what you want to have or think you should have, so you end up using other people, being in conflict with creation to use what has been created to get you what you want. He says that kind of discontent begins to change because the love of Christ transforms you from the inside out and heals what you were trying to heal by using other people to fill the voids in your life that can only be filled by the love of Christ, that can only be healed by the love of... When it does that, when the love of Christ begins to heal and transform you, he says your ethic changes, your wisdom changes to that from above. And the result is a humility that causes discontent with continuing to live in a manner that is not consistent with what you are learning and are experiencing is the love of Christ. Richard Carter knew something was wrong. But that practice was normal. Everybody did it. He was going to be ostracized if he did anything different. And yet what he's learning as he's being healed and encountering teachings that are leading him to God, helping him to understand and experience for himself the love of God, and that love is healing and transforming him, he's looking at the world around him and his discontent changes. No longer does he need the things. No longer does he need the people to be things. Now, Now he looks around and realizes that he's been living in a manner that's inconsistent with the love of Christ. When you encounter a belief or a practice that makes you uncomfortable, you should ask a question. And that question should not be directed to yourself. That's what James says is the wisdom of the world. You think you have enough wisdom to answer your own questions, that should raise a flag in your life. A question should not be directed to yourself. The question needs to be directed to God. Am I uncomfortable with this belief or practice because the belief or practice is inconsistent with the love of Christ? Or am I uncomfortable with the belief or practice because what I've believed and what I have practiced is inconsistent with the love of Christ? Which one of those two things is it, God? And if you need help with that, find someone who is more spiritually mature than you are and ask them to be your accountability partner as you get to know God better as well. And bounce that off them. Ask them to be in prayer with you about that so that together you can discern which of those two things it is. Am I, being, am I feeling uncomfortable with this belief or practice 
Because what I've been believing and practicing is inconsistent with the love of Christ, and this is different than that. This is different than the culture I was taught in my childhood, uh, different than what I've decided to believe is okay, different than whatever could be the case. It's what I've been doing and believing inconsistent with the love of Christ, and that's why I'm uncomfortable, or am I uncomfortable because what I'm encountering in this belief or practice is inconsistent with the love of Christ. Richard Carter found both of those things to be true, and so will you. The idea of emancipating enslaved people made a lot of people in Virginia and elsewhere very uncomfortable because it was different from the status quo, because it was inconsistent with the love of Christ. So his discontent changes. No longer is he discontent with what he doesn't have. The change from selfish ambition to humility that is a result of a real encounter with the love of Christ causes him to change how he feels so that he can no longer live in a manner that is inconsistent with the love of Christ. Some would have said to him, but you can't change the whole world, Richard. And Richard said, no, I can't change the whole world, but I can change what I'm doing in the world. And so he did. And it was hard. And the people who'd always done things a certain way, who believed strongly, you wouldn't believe if you decided to research it, the number of sermons preached that tried to justify slavery in the American colonies and the early United States according to the Bible. People were very uncomfortable with that and so because of it, the decision he made to live in a manner that was consistent with the love of Christ that made him discontent with the status quo that had become normal, but being normal didn't make it right, caused him to have a, a moment of decision in which he said, I'm going to choose to live in a way that's consistent with the love of Christ as best I understand it and experience it. And he was so ostracized, he had to go move to Baltimore. I don't think there's anything wrong with Baltimore. I like it there, but there is a chance. that in order to live consistently with the love of Christ as you're learning about it, there's always such a problem when we fail to adopt the posture of a disciple. When we believe we know all things and contain all things and have all wisdom, he calls that earthly wisdom. When we choose to stop being a disciple, stop being a learner, stop being someone who's actively seeking the knowledge and the love of Christ through experience with Christ, when that happens, we're in danger of choosing to interpret the Scriptures in a way that reinforces whatever our current comfort zone is. Richard couldn't do that anymore, and so he made a decision, and for him it was hard And yet it was not nearly as hard as the lives of the people that he had been holding in slavery. Not nearly as hard as what their lives would be even after being freed. Or the lives of their descendants. When I began to put this together, I thought I would give you the admonition to use that story as an opportunity, the teachings of James as an opportunity, to take a look at the areas of your life that are inconsistent with the love of Christ and talk together with God about changing them because they may require that you move outside of your comfort zone. You've heard me say before, if your understanding of what is right and wrong morality primarily comes from your birth family, 
which for many of us it does. If your understanding of right and wrong is more tainted by your fears of being ostracized by the community that you're a part of than it is by learning about the love of Christ, spend some time together with God talking about that. So I thought I would do that, and I was praying about it. And the Holy Spirit just led me a different way. God said, no, James gives you the place to start. James, the brother of Jesus, who sat with Jesus around meals and around fires and walked with Jesus and probably uh, played around with Jesus as a child when they were growing up. James, whose words so eloquently echo the preserved words of Christ as they've been uh, written in the Gospels. He already told us where to start. He said to draw near to God and God will draw near to us. If you choose to draw near to God, that's the place you begin. I don't change you. You don't change me. I hope it's not a surprise to you that your well-thought-out social media arguments are not changing the minds of people, right? Nor the means we share. But God says that if we come near to God, God's love will heal and will transform as it heals. We will move into the fullness of what it means to live in and consistent with the love of Christ because we want to, because that's what the love of Christ does as it heals and transforms. So as I was praying about this, God said, no, don't do that. James already gives the admonition. Draw near to me, God says. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. So here's the admonition I'm going to give you. Last week, I asked you to spend an entire week not saying anything negative to or about another person. And I hope you did it. I bet you didn't, but I hope you did. I want to confess to you that I tried and I found it hard. Particularly the part about not saying anything bad about anybody. And then filling that with words of encouragement so that the criticism that never affected change will be replaced by an encouragement that does. This week I want to give you another admonition and it's also not easy. I'm going to ask you to take an hour every day and set it aside. Thomas Merton wrote frequently that we need to give some time and attention to the moments when we're praying and our mind wanders so that we can allow the Holy Spirit to direct the thoughts of our minds so that we're thinking together with the Holy Spirit. I want you to do that. I'm going to ask you to give an hour every day and sit down and begin that time by saying this. It's an hour. Begin that time by saying this, God, please think through some things with me over the next hour. And then I want you to sit there and think together with God for an hour. I'm going to ask you to do that Monday or through Friday. And then on Saturday, take a piece of paper out. And if you did it all week, sit down and jot down some thoughts during that hour about how that practice has affected your life this week. You do not have to continue to do what has become normal when what has become normal is inconsistent with the love of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I want to lift up I want to lift up those who are struggling today in whatever capacity they might be. I want to lift up those who are struggling with generational trauma at the hands of another person, at the hands of a government, at the hands of an institution, at the hands of the church, at the hands of their parents or grandparents. 
I want to pray for those, God, who want to believe that what I'm saying about the healing and transformative love of Christ is real, but are afraid to. I want to lift up those who have chosen to take what they believe about right and wrong from their culture instead of from their relationship with you. I want to lift up those of us who've been taught to use fear as our primary interpretive hermeneutic for the Scriptures instead of checking our interpretation of the Scriptures against our knowledge and what we're learning and our experience of the love that only comes from you. I want to lift up those who have been told that they are not enough for any reason. I want to lift up those who have been rejected or ostracized for any reason. I want to lift up those who want to believe that there's got to be a better way than what they've experienced, but struggle to trust that there could be. And I want to lift up those who are maybe right now for the first time realizing how much they've contributed to the pain and suffering of others and didn't even realize that they did. What you call us to is better than what we have become. But if there's a consistency And everything you've told us across time is that there's hope. That you have a natural draw that naturally inclines our heart and your love to express that love, embrace it, and share it with other people in a way that's proactive and sacrificial and unconditional and non-coercive and non-judgmental and consistent with who you are and what you've shown us. So in the places that we will go this week, Help us to choose to ask. Ask. Ask for an experience of your love. To ask God for the opportunity to be transformed and healed at the same time by a love that's never ending. So that we can share that love with other people in a way that is life-giving. Help us to move ahead. step into the life that you've been calling us to for a really long time. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Be sure to tune in next week.